Welcome into the Leadership Legacy Podcast, where we interview influential leaders, learn the why, and how they turn their passions into progress that set them on the path to leaving their legacy. Leadership Legacy Podcast. This is episode number 33 with Edward Newfield. He is the partner and owner of the law f- office of Edward W. Newfield III, LLC. They are a full-service U.S. immigration and nationality and transitional law firm located in the Washington, D.C. suburbs of Silver Spring, Maryland. Since 2004, they have offered international organizations, nonprofit entities, companies, and individuals a variety of services at their disposal to aid them in their search for immigration and international legal options. With all the things going on in today's society with the caravan and immigration issues in the United States, uh, Edward and his team are completely slammed. And so we are completely grateful that they had some time over the last few weeks uh, to sit down and talk to us about their firm and about how they got started. Welcome into the Leadership Legacy Podcast. I have the honor of sitting with Edward Newfield, who is uh, the partner and owner of Newfield Law here in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, Ed, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you and... It is a pleasure uh, to be here. Awesome. Well, Ed, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Okay. Well, um, I was born in in Liberia, which is on the west coast of Africa. Um, I grew up, well, I lived there until I was about 14 years old, and then I came to the United States um, in December of 1990. Uh, and it was, you know, as a result of the uh, civil uh, civil crisis um, that um, the civil crisis that started, and I came to the U.S. Um, I settled in uh, Sumter, South Carolina, and uh, when I first came, uh, I lived with my godfather, uh, who uh, attended a seminary with my dad, and so. In an attempt to get me out of Liberia, um, you know, he agreed to have me come over to Sumter, South Carolina, and that's where I kind of stayed. And my mom um, and the rest of the other families, uh, you know, relocated from Liberia to Sumter, South Carolina, and that's where my journey in the U.S. Uh, started. Well, we've been doing a, a, a video shoot today. We've, we've had a lot of fun so far, and. Um, and through that, I've learned even more about mm-hmm. you. But tell us a little bit uh, about your passions. Um, I, uh, there's, an, there's an Olympic athlete yes, in there. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, uh, international mm-hmm. immigration law. Yeah. Um, but tell us a little bit about some of the things that you that, that you're up to now. Well, I mean, passions. Uh, Tony, I would say, you know, pretty much, I like I like challenges, and so. One of the things that you know I like to do is to push myself. Um, I enjoy uh, working out. I enjoy going to the gym. I enjoy uh, you know things like that. Living in DC also provides me with the opportunity to get to learn other things and experience you know new things. Uh, one of my passions is uh, is being able to travel. 
and see new things. Um, and you know, whether it's traveling overseas or even traveling within um, the Washington D.C. area or within the U.S., is all it, it always brings. You know, new ideas. I love you know history. I've always loved history, and even became you know in. I always thought I would become a history um, professor, until I realized that well, you know, there's not. You know, I guess you know I would have to get a PhD and you know write a lot of books, but I love history, and it's something that being in DC also allows me with the opportunity to kind of you know go into that um, passion, you know, to learn more and. You know, for me, it's kind of fun just learning about the past, you know, learning the lives of, uh, you know, if it's either uh, past presidents or other interesting facts and, and whatnot. You came over when you were 14 yeah. and um, Sumter, South Carolina, yeah. uh, got into high school, started mm-hmm. um, started running track. Yeah, you know, it was a funny thing. I Before I ran track, um, it was during the fall, so I ran across... Country, and I was not very good at the distance. Um, and in my mind, I was like, okay, well, maybe it's time for me to try a similar sport, you know, like uh, like trying a um, basketball. Well, you know, I didn't quite um, train or go through the preseason training, and I tried out a basketball, and, and that didn't turn out so well. But one one interesting thing was that when I was doing sports, my grades excel, and once I stopped. I kind of it kind of fell a little bit, so my parents felt that you know being involved in track and field will will actually you know uh, you know help me. Started running track, and how I got into hurdles was there was a a, a Sumter High School student that had previously graduated, uh, and he was an excellent track runner. He was ranked like number one in the U.S., and he was also a great uh, football uh, you know player. And he had just signed on to play football at South. Carolina, and I remember telling my teammates that I was going to break his, you know, hurdles freshman record and sophomore record. And mind you, I've never, I had never run, you know, um, hurdles before. So I kind of created this, this, um, uh, this pressure or this challenge on myself that I had now had to live up to what I was saying. Mm-hmm. And so, in the first track meet, out of pure fear. And having to live up to what I've been saying, I ran the hurdles and won it. And thereafter, it just became second nature. Mm-hmm. And I think from my freshman year, I think I won pretty every meet, um, except maybe at regionals or you know at state meet. But you know, sophomore year, uh, junior year, it was kind of like, okay, well, this is fun. This is what you know. I excel in, mm-hmm. and I begin to see each season as a challenge. And by the time I got into my senior year, I had made up my mind that okay, I'll, I think I want to go to UNC, uh, you know, Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, you had uh, Clemson and, and all those other uh, you know regional. But I visited UNC in my sophomore year, just you know, casually. And I ran into uh, Dean Smith, and he signed my hat. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I love you know Carolina now. When recruiting began, um, at that time UNC had you know a, a very deep track team with a lot of uh, athletes that were ranked in the top ten, you know, um, in a nation. Mm-hmm. And so the coach told me, say, you know, Eddie, you may be 
scholarship material for other universities, but at UNC, you know, we need you to run this time or to be here before we can offer you a scholarship. And I remember at the state track meet, you know, I had that at the back, at the back of my head that, okay, well, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to accomplish. And not only did I run fast enough, but I ran fast enough to set the state record and also to run at that time was the second fastest time in the US for the full for the four hundred hurdles. And so, you know, when I turned around, I looked at him and he nodded and said, I'll give you a call. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of like how I got into UNC and kind of like, you know, and you know, once that happened, I said, Well, you know, there's no stopping to it, you know, and I had made up my mind, you know, when when I was younger that I was gonna run in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And 1996 presented the perfect opportunity, and I said, you know, I'm, you know, it's here, you know, I'm, you know, in college, you know, why don't I inquire about, you know, whether or not there's a Liberian track team? Mm-hmm. And I actually traveled back to Liberia, you know, to sign up, and the federation said, you know, there are three other athletes in the U.S. Why don't you link up, link up with them? They're all running track and you guys form this team and let's see what we can put together. And so once I got back, I connected with them and the Olympic dream, you know, started. Everything was going pretty well until about April, you know, when, you know, teams were coming to Atlanta and then there was an outburst of fighting in Liberia and we kind of lost all contact with the team. And, you know, we had to report to the Olympic Village to, um, you know, to where we'll be training. And we were assigned to this small town in Georgia called, uh, in, called uh, Jefferson, Georgia, which is outside of, um, right, not too far from Athens, you know, Georgia. And so we, you know, we were, we were training, hoping that things would come through, but also knowing that we had to do our own marketing, we had to do our own outreach mm-hmm. to teams. So as a 19-year-old, I took it upon myself to start calling companies. And the interesting thing was I picked up the phone and I don't remember if it was Reebok or Nike, but I remember calling one of the vice presidents directly and said, this is who I am. This is what team I run for. Here's what our situation is. And I need to speak with this lady. And I remember being transferred and being put on the phone and of course now hindsight, you know, I'm listening and she's probably like, who's this guy calling? And kind of like, is this for real? Mm-hmm. But I told her, this is our plight. This is what's happening. And she said, well, we don't, we don't have a contract with Liberia, you know, for, you know, Nike. But um, I think Reebok had um, this arrangement with the Olympic uh, Games that they will supply uniforms and, you know, shoes to to nations who didn't have a contract. And so we were able to, we were put in touch with Reebok and we got what we needed That's and awesome. you know outfitted. But the interesting thing is before we got uh, to officially participate, and now this is all hindsight because back then I was just like, look, we're here, we're going to the Olympic Village, I'm gonna run, whatever that needs to be done, I'll do it. And we met with the you know Olympic organizers and I think one of the criteria was like, look, you guys, you know, we haven't had any official word from your, you know, federation. 
but you all, all are Liberians, well, there has to be some qualifications. So there was a, a time trial or a meet that was held at Life University you know, in, uh, in Georgia, mm-hmm. and we were supposed to run. So I was like, well, even better. This is our chance to kind of do a dry run, and let's run. And so we ran, and I think they, were, you know, they wanted to see if we were actually runners. Actually yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, we, you know, we've, we have been practicing. We all, you know, ran at Division I uh, universities. So that allowed us to run, qualify, and we're on our way to the Olympics. So, I mean, all that was hindsight, you know, looking back hindsight and looking at that, all the hurdles that yeah. we had to go through and all the, you know, bureaucracy. You know, for me, it was kind of like, well, whatever that needs to be done, we will do it because there was no doubt in my mind that yeah. we weren't, you know, going to run. Well, it's such a it's such an interesting story, and and just look into the tenacity that you have and the the, the don't give up that you have. And, yeah. Um, to then going into uh, a law career, tell us a little bit about how Newfield Law came about. When I went into law school, my my idea of being a lawyer was going to work for either the United Nations or work for a law firm doing international trade. The idea of working for myself didn't really come up because it was like, well, you know, I haven't, you know, this is something maybe I'll do at the end of my career mm-hmm. versus starting off with the main, you know, uh, yeah. uh, part. During law school, Still, you know, you have this idea, okay, you know, I'll, I'll work for a law firm, I'll, I'll look for a job. How do you get clients and all those things? So Newfield Law actually started after I graduated from law school. I passed the bar and I was looking for a job and doing a, a good amount of volunteer work at Catholic you know, charities and, and other nonprofit organizations within Washington, D.C. Okay. And so, you know, halfway through, I said to myself, you know what? Maybe what I could do is, to, in order to gain experience, start to take on my own clients, but in a very limited area. And those clients will be clients who uh, were recently granted either employment authorization, were working, and they didn't qualify for pro, for pro bono services at these nonprofits, and I will take them on. And that's how I started. And the referral scheme, because I had, you know, I, the attorneys at these nonprofits knew me. They have worked with me. They, you know, they all they serve as my mentor. And so this was an opportunity to provide a low bono sliding scale, um, you know, work for clients who could pay some. Mm-hmm. Now at that time, I didn't even know what low bono or sliding scale was because I was like, oh, you know what. If you pay me 300 bucks, I will provide you with the level of work and detail that I know. So mm-hmm. I was doing, you know, asylum cases and putting in, you know, 40 hours, 50 hours, you know, of work. And, you know, 500 bucks at that time were diamonds, you know, to me. And so I developed my, my uh, practice area within the realm of, of asylum law. And as a result, those clients came back with me to me with other cases. Either they have family and friends or other people who saw like, the work I did. Mm-hmm. And then the practice began to grow. So I actually started my practice in Baltimore in June, 20, uh, June 2004. I was actually, I was sworn in June 15, 2004 and my practice opened July 15, 2004. And it was in Baltimore, I started 
and the practice was launched. And since then, you know, it's it's taken off, and and I haven't really looked back again. There's a lot to, a lot to be said to be your own boss and to do what you love to do and to kind of make your not not necessarily make yeah. your own schedule, but mm-hmm. you're you're passionate about what you do, and you get to you get to kind of set the set the targets and or set the trajectory the, of where you want to go. Of where you want to go. Yeah. And you know, and I, and I think Tony, like the most important thing that you know people say, oh, you know, you are you are your own boss, and you can show up at any time. What you want to do is, you know, it's. I would. It's not <laughs> always true because it's was, it was almost like you become your own boss, and because you're because you are your own boss, you can't really decide not to show up because you have bills to pay, mm-hmm. you have employees, but definitely you have the freedom to take on cases and kind of chart the life that you want to live. Exactly. And I think being your own boss, the the crucial thing is that you don't become an employee for your practice or for your firm. Because, you know, if you if you become an employee, then you're not really working. I mean, you're not your own boss. You're now working for your own. I mean, that idea, mm-hmm. and you become an employee. Mm-hmm. So I see it more as becoming. You know, if you're working for yourself, you you become your own. You're the manager of your dreams, mm-hmm. and let that dream and ideas propel you uh, into how you want to live your life. Um, and kind of guided where versus, and I think it's hard at first. I mean, of course, at first you have to put in the hours to build the practice and build your dream. Mm-hmm. And then from that point is being able to step back and say, okay, now that I, that I have it, now it's going to work for me and I'll just manage. A lot of entrepreneurs that start businesses, they think, okay, well, this is my business. This is how I'm going to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. And they think of it in that employee, I'm an employee of my business mentality when Really, it should be working for you, like you said. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from hiring good people to work with you. When you look for somebody to hire yeah. to come on to practice, whether it's a clerk or a paralegal or somebody mm-hmm. that's going to be coming to, to help you with research cases mm-hmm. or whatever it may be in your office, what are some of the characteristics that you look for in those type of people? I look for someone who has the basic fundamentals first in the law and also have a passion to work hard. Uh, someone who is willing to uh, willing to, to be you know trained mm-hmm. and being taught as to you know other things. And so when they come into my practice, the, one of the things that I tell them is that you know in you know when you come here, you should be open to ideas because we are always learning, and to be open to being able to work hard and work, be able to work effectively and enjoy what you do. Uh, because once you enjoy what you do and what, what you're doing, you're more open to learning, and you're easily trained and being able to, uh, you know, take instructions and uh, and whatnot. That those are the things I, I look at, and also someone who's hungry, you know, so someone who wants to learn, someone who who wants to be better, and someone who who wants to, you know, grow. I don't, you know, I have, you know, I think in terms of. Training and sharing of knowledge. I'm I'm very open in sharing my knowledge, uh, even if I know that in a year, three years, the person might leave. Because my idea is that if I if I train them well, whatever time period they're here for, they're gonna be able to give me back and produce those results, and that will help me, uh, especially if I'm paying them. Mm-hmm. So if someone is learning and growing and feel a part of a team it's 
not very likely that they will want to leave, you know, so soon. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather someone says, you know, I, I've outgrown the law firm and I have to go. And I say, you know what? It's better for you to branch out mm -hmm. than stay here because I don't want, you know, to stunt your growth. And over the years, I've had, you know, intern law clerks who have gone on to work for the, for the Department of Justice, uh, you know, Homeland Security, and have come back and say, hey, you know, I enjoyed my time working here, and what you've taught me has really helped me. And they've always come back to say, okay, I'm moving on to this next chapter. What advice do you have for me? And so that's always, you know, satisfying. Well, that's a good connect. Those are good connections. I mean, you're almost like you're you're putting out your your team. You know, you train them up and then yeah. you, you send them out, and then you never know when one of those connections might have a big case for you or need you to partner with them on something. And having those connections, those connect. I think a lot of people uh, take for granted the mm -hmm. personal connections. So if somebody leaves your company, it's like, oh, it was great. I wish they were still here. Probably not going to work with them anymore, but you just never know what could happen down the road with those relationships. Definitely, definitely. And I think also, you know, being a business owner is being comfortable in knowing the extent, you know, of, of your, or the size of your practice, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we come to a point where you, you know, realize and say, okay, you know, I'm the owner of this firm. You know, I, you know, I'm managing, but for, for, for the employees you know, see themselves here for five years or maybe six years or so. And it's not a bad thing, you know, mm -hmm. because maybe the uh, format you have just allows that period of time for them to be here. And if they're here longer, they are not, they may not be as valued or they may not bring in value to the practice because yeah. they may have overgrown or they're not satisfied with you know their careers and they begin to reflect you know on on the work that they yeah, do so you want them focus. to enjoy yeah and say okay you know now that you've done all this you know go out and go for bigger things i mean i want to work for the larger law firm but it should means that you were trapped here and you can't leave so that's i think being a manager also is being able to look and say you know what we're all members of the team and I love to have you here. But if you come to me and say you're looking for bigger things, you know, and we're not there or we don't have the resources to, you know, to mm -hmm. handle, go out. Having that good relationship, you know, as you said, will allow them to come back and say, Hey, you know, we have these cases that we can't handle, but I'll send them, you know, your way because you know, we left on a good uh, you know, good mark. What's been the hardest thing so far? Not only in, in starting your business, but in, in the line of work that your business is in. From a business perspective, I think the hardest part has been uh, learning how to run a practice. Uh, the practicing of law, I mean, you spend three years in school, you, you are trained on how to research and interpret the law, and it comes, you know, and it's much easier. But being able to put a value to your time, value to your knowledge is something that is not taught in law school. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and for the most part, I don't think you learn it, you know, in, I think, I don't think you're taught growing up that, you know, your time is valued in this money. I mean, yes, you talk about, you know, respecting people's time, showing up a time and those things, but in terms of how much to charge for your time is something that, that you have, that, that you learn. And especially if you're passionate about, 
you know, your practice or what you do, you, you tend to want to talk about it more and share it. And so mm-hmm. there's a fine line between how much do you share for free and, and how much do you, you know, hold back and say, okay, well, this is what you have to pay for now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so learning how to market yourself, knowing how to sell yourself, you know, a lot of things, you know, you, you have to learn. And also learning, knowing how to delegate. Because for for much part, you know, you're you know you're an, an expert in, you know, you're building this practice. It's your darling. You've invested your time, resources, sweat, and you want everything done your way. But being able to to take your hands off some task and say, you know what, I'm going to delegate and trust that my employees will be able to handle. And I think that that has been a learning experience in the professional world in the immigration practice. Um, a lot has been happening, um, you know, thanks to the news. So, you know, you have a lot of clients that are nervous. You have mm-hmm. a lot of clients that are asking questions. And also as a result of the new policies have made the practicing of law or practicing of immigration law a lot more harder in the sense that there's, there's a very small window of error, you know, that you can, you know, have. Mm-hmm. And so now... You know, you have to be 100%, you know, on target, uh, and you can't take anything for granted. Not that we did previously, but there was a little bit more wiggle room of being able to bring, you know, supplementing documentation at the interview or where the government may ask for additional evidence if they don't need it. Now, there's policies that if the officer feels that you know, he can make a d- decision on this case even without asking for additional information. They can do it. So now it's, it's, it's more like, well, I don't have this document yet. It's not maybe as important, but it's important. Do I submit the applications now? Because I have everything else except this one document that may or may not be relevant, but you don't want to risk it. Yeah. And so there's a lot more pressures on the attorney and a lot more pressures on the clients and those all those things get channeled to the lawyer and as i tell my staff we are the you know we are the we are what the clients see when they look at getting their you know green card so we're so the the u.s um, government is here the client is on the other end and we're in the center and when they're frustrated, they can't go to the government to complain. They come to us and we feel the brunt of frustrations. And being able to just listen to clients being angry takes a level of patience to say, okay, tell me what is the issue. Let me look into that. Or being able to tell the client, you know, there's nothing actually that I can do because it's just in the nature mm-hmm. of what the bureaucracy is now. Or being able to tell clients, you know what, you can apply, but if we submit these documents now and we don't have document A, if it's denied, you're going in front of a judge, which even if we could reapply again in front of the judge makes your case more expensive and takes a much longer period of time. So it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, stressful days, a lot of... Um, nervous you know clients Mm -hmm. and also being able to kind of advise them as to what the future will be when the future keeps changing or the 
goalpost keeps moving. Yeah. So you think you have this down and you have to call them and say, well, remember what I told you? Well, this is kind of changed now, so let's move this way. And sometimes the news media don't really help because the way how issues are explained on the news is, is quite different from how it really operates. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to also deal with the questions, well, this is what the news said. Why is this not, yeah. not, not happening? Or why haven't you filed this? Because I heard on the news this says this. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine that. I mean, and the, with, with social media, just people putting out whatever they want to, mm -hmm. what's, what's fact, what's not, I'm sure that that's hard. There's a word out there that a lot of people die by, mm -hmm. and some people use it as a stepping stone. That word's failure. Mm -hmm. What does the word failure mean to you? Failure. Well, failure, in my opinion, means where you know you just kind of give up, where you try something or you make an effort to try something and it doesn't work and you you just quit. Now, other people may say, "Well, I started my own business and I failed," uh, or "I did this and I failed," and I said to myself, "Well, you never you don't if you rebound." and you come at it again or you transition into another phase and you learn from your experiences, it's never a failure. It's, I see it as a success or as a stepping stone. Um, and so I come back to maybe the athletic um, analogy where, you know, you have, you know, the hurdles, you have, uh, you know, 10 hurdles and you run those hurdles. They're all hurdles in there. Um, Failure is not hitting the hurdles and, and running the race and saying, look, you know, how many hurdles I've hit, you know, like I'm terrible. Failure is where you hit the hurdle and you just stop and you say, I'm not going because I hit one hurdle. I failed on this hurdle. So the rest of the other nine hurdles, I'm not going to uh, run through it because this one hurdle has stopped me from running. Mm -hmm. And you find that many people who complete the race they seldom look back and say, man, I've, I've hit seven hurdles or eight hurdles to look at, you know, to cross the finish line and to look at the time and say, how fast did I run? And the next time around, I'm going to try to beat that time. And the hurdles then turn into not obstacles, but actual part of their vision of achieving those times. Because now they're saying, how fast can I go over each hurdle? And how fast can I run those 10 hurdles? Mm -hmm. And those hurdles now become an asset because you see them as part of your challenge and part of the race. And if you take those hurdles out of the formula, then there's no then 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 there's not a challenge anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes away what you're trying to achieve. So I, I see, so failure to me is where you have one setback or you have one success, mm -hmm. and you say I'm done. I've achieved this, I've made it, and I'm not trying anymore because you're afraid because you won't be able to achieve what you just did. My idea of failure doesn't really mean, doesn't, I don't see it as, okay, I had a bad setback, or it could be I had a great run, but I'm not doing it again because I'm not going to venture into this. I'm a fear, you know, I'm afraid of not being able to live up to what I just did. You have time to, to read any books? Um... Not really. Yeah, I have well, time to. Busy. Yeah, I've had time to read, to make an attempt to read 
books or others have attempted to to suggest books to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a colleague of mine asked whether I've read uh, the book on uh, on Hamilton mm-hmm. or also Grant, mm-hmm. um, and to kind of you know see how the um, the political um, the political um, this course was at that time compared to now, mm-hmm. um, and you know, from what he tells me, it's not as bad as we think now okay. <laughs> versus back then. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm also uh, you know having interest of kind of going back to re re books that I've read before to just mm-hmm. kind of get a sense. You know, you know, in high school you have all these books you have to read mm-hmm. that you you know didn't really appreciate now you can kind of sit back and read it and kind of reflect and say oh you know this is actually a very good book and appreciate uh you know uh you know the authorship um one book i started to read was uh gary's v book on 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 crunching it is it one is and so when i was traveling to liberia in june you know i started to read it and kind of get you know that sense of yeah. you know what you know what uh, you know Gary V is and and all those things. Yeah. Um, so he's intense. It's a good book. Yes, 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 yes. Crushing it. It's a good book. Yes. Um, well, I've got two I've yeah. got two more questions for you. If you were to write a book about mm-hmm. about your journey in life so yeah. far, and I'm not going to hold you mm-hmm. to this, but what would the title of that book be? Ah, perfect. Yes, because I have one in mind. It's getting to the starting line. Getting to the start, starting line and facing your fears. Mm-hmm. So there will be a, a main a title and then facing your fears. And the reason why I say getting to the starting line is that the first, the first step to success is the being able to get up, lace up, and get to the starting line. Mm-hmm. And once you're there, at the starting line, you know you've you would have faced your fears. You would have gotten rid of all all of the naysayers, and you're in. The raise and you're in that you know you're in that zone mm-hmm. to start to achieve what you want, mm-hmm. and you know I say facing your fears because people talk about conquering fears. Oh, I'm going to conquer my fear, and I always see it as you know, I, and I guess you can face your fears and conquer it, but if you're only conquering and defeating, it's kind of like that enemy or that fear will always rise up again somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly conquering and conquering. If you face your fears, it's kind of like you diminish what that fear is because mm-hmm. you're constantly dealing with it. And so something that used to be so fearful, if you face it and you say, you know what, I'm afraid of this or this is something that has been holding me back, but I will look it in the face and in the eye, then that fear no longer exists. Mm-hmm. But you're con- I mean, you're still facing and dealing with it and the level of anxiety or fear diminish and then you can move on and it becomes maybe a good fear and it becomes something to push yeah to like push you and say oh this is great and you're moving forward and so it will be getting to the starting line facing your fears uh talking about how i eventually face my fears Mm -hmm. uh, which was you know for the most part uh i wouldn't say speaking it was just being able um to see my name. And so whenever there was a chance where I would speak, I wouldn't worry about, I wouldn't be afraid of actually the talking. It would just be able to say my name. Mm-hmm. Because from for, for me, I had this fear that everybody should be able to say their name. 
and if I can't say my name, then, you know, how can I be a great lawyer? Because that's what lawyers do. You know, you stand up and you say your name and everyone's like, wow, you know. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was that fear. And so being able to face that fear and say, you know what? I'm going to say my name regardless how it comes out. I'm going to say it. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be an anxiety or a fear that's going to hold me back. Right. So it's kind of like getting so getting in there, moving mm -hmm. forward and saying, you know what? You know, see that and then seeing that anxiety drop down is a yeah. it becomes more of a scavenger scavenger hunt now where mm -hmm. you're looking for opportunities to say, okay, I wonder how this would turn out now. Yeah. <laughs> we've got we've got one last question. Yes, no problem, you. no problem. And this wrap this kind of wraps everything mm -hmm. that we talked about. From you know coming over from Liberia mm -hmm. to uh, running the Olympics to starting your own law firm to just facing adversity and just and just knocking it down. Um, when you look back on your life, you look mm -hmm. back on on your on your family mm -hmm. and your kids and all the the thousands of people that you've helped come to this country mm -hmm. or helped come back to this country. Um, and this the way that you've affected the the community around mm -hmm. you. When you leave this earth. What do you want all those people to remember you by? And what's that, what's that legacy look like for, for you? The most important thing for me would be, I guess, for someone to say that, you know, I came to Mr. Newell and he provided me with candid advice and he was a man of integrity. That I could come to him, I could tell him what the situation was and he will provide me with the best candid advice. To me, that's very important. Mm -hmm. uh, more than money or, or, or you know, anything like, like uh, that. So you know, having that positive name or being able to you know, hold up you know, the family's name is important to me, mm -hmm. uh, rather than, than you know, riches or you know, how much thousands you have. Mm -hmm. One thing that I value of all, and I tell my clients, is that you know, regardless of you know, what the situation is. I want that at the end of the day, whether you win your case or you lose your case, to say I came to Mr. Newell and I got my value. I feel confident that all options were, were explored and I feel mm -hmm. confident. And that even if you lose your case, I want you to say, you know what, I recommend this guy to you. He did um, his absolute, absolute best. When even if a judge comes to you or talks to you, I want that judge or that prosecutor to say, if I was ever in trouble, or, or if I ever faced with something like this or ever had a family member in a situation, I will call this attorney because of his integrity and because he's zealously advocated for his client. And that's what I want for myself. That's the legacy I want to leave so that those coming after me can kind of follow in that. Well, man, I appreciate you having us in your office all oh, day no today. <laughs> We've got a video shoot tomorrow yes. too. I'm excited of all yes. of the different locations we're going to be. Uh -huh. uh, just uh, you know, just to take in this great uh, capital, this incredible nation that we live in. Uh, no matter no matter what you believe on either side of the yeah. fence, uh, it's just a gorgeous place. It's a it's a it's a uh, just a place rich in history. And so I appreciate you having us up here. Hey, this is your host, Tony Oravet of the Leadership Legacy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this past episode. It would mean the world to me if you would go and rate this podcast on iTunes and share it with your friends. Show notes and information on today's guest are on leadershiplegacy.show.
Oh, 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 oh,